He knows as much about music as he does about baseball. We'll talk with MastersBall.com fantasy writer Lore Michaels about Ryan Braun, the Garza trade, futures game prospects, fab bidding, the importance of later rounds, buy lows, sell highs, and rock and roll. Next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right-hander for the Giants throws. Swing and a miss! And that's it! The Giants are world champions as they come pouring out of the dugout. Circling Brian Wilson, the bullpen, flying in from left center field, dancing, hugging, and celebrating for all you Giants fans, wherever you are. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, July the 23rd. It's show number 29 of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and in addition to MastersBall.com fantasy writer Lore Michaels, we'll have commentaries from the experts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our regular minor league minute, Rob Gordon looks at Minnesota second base prospect Eddie Rosario. And in Master Notes, rotisserie columnist Patrick DiCaprio talks about handling those major league trade rumors. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? You know anybody who took Ryan Braun ahead of Miguel Cabrera? We gotta talk some baseball. As you've no doubt heard, Major League Baseball has suspended Brewers outfielder Ryan Braun, a top-five fantasy player coming into 2013, for the rest of the year for violating the game's drug policy. Braun will not appeal the suspension, and some reports say he struck a deal with Major League Baseball to avoid having his suspension carry over into 2014. It's a sad story, but a big story, and it's where we'll start today with our special feature guest, Lore Michaels of MastersBall.com and KFFL.com and USA Today. Lore, welcome back to the show. Thanks a lot, Patrick. It's, uh, it's always so good to talk with you. We have some breaking news that I'd like to discuss with you, Laura. Of course, the story that's really dominating the baseball media, Ryan Braun has agreed to be suspended for the rest of the season without pay because of the Biogenesis PED scandal. And let me start by just asking you for an overview of your thoughts, having heard this news. Um, well, it goes a couple of ways. On, on, on one hand, I'm, I'm a little surprised. In, in a way, I'm a little surprised that he didn't. He, I think he probably still had an appeal process available to him and it's i don't know by road it's so normal in our culture for people to you know take that you know innocent until proven guilty path and including ball players that you know i mean when ball players throw at each other and they get suspended for for doing that they they still say well i didn't really mean to do it uh, so on, on one hand i'm a little surprised that that he doesn't isn't a little more vigilant about it. Um, and I, I also think that, especially in his case, since he beat baseball in a technicality last time, I, I, I talked with many people and thought, there's probably no way that they're going to let him try to get there. He's going to get targeted. They don't want him to thumb his nose at them, them being the powers that be, the, 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 the commissioner's office, baseball at large. They're not going to let Braun get away with this this time. He's so I, I'm, I, I, I think it goes a little bit. It, it's uh, him not resisting more as he did before was a little puzzling, and I think it's a reasonable expectation that that that, that Major League Baseball would say, "Hey, you're not going to get away with it this time." On the other hand, it is a little refreshing. <clears throat> I thought his comments that. He's made his mistakes and he accepts his consequences is a remarkably mature thing. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think he just wants to get it over with, get it behind him, and move forward. So in that sense, it was probably kind of a healthy thing for him to do. Um, uh, so, you know, it's, it's such an odd thing because it's, it's, it's not like baseball hasn't had its scandals like this before, and I don't even really know if it's so much scandal as it is 
an attempt to get an edge or whatever, which is nothing unusual in any profession. You mentioned that it was somewhat surprising that Braun, having had a successful technical appeal of his first suspension last year, uh, knuckled under so quickly. And I wonder, there's been some people commenting that this makes the union look a little bit weak in that it it announced ahead of time that it wasn't going to support anybody who wanted to, uh, who was accused or, or found guilty by the commissioner's office and suspended, that uh, the, the union appears to be much less... Uh, confrontational, shall we say, with Major League Baseball than it used to be. And I wonder, do you think that's so? And if so, what do you think it says about the state of labor relations? At least for the last 15, 20 years, just labor has taken a pretty bad hit from from management in general. Um, it's, it's, you know, with our uh, economic woes just as a country at large. So I think that's that's one thing. I think it's also important to remember that, like it or not, at least politically, baseball is a pretty conservative sport. It moves pretty slowly. But I think also there's the publicity game or the public relations game that the Players Association... I mean, I think Marvin Miller was a really strong leader. I don't know what he would take these days or what he would put up with. But on the other hand, if you if you've got caught... I mean, look at... I hate to say poor A-Rod because... He's hardly poor, but and, and he's had a pretty successful career, but his reputation is toast in New York. He's not very well liked. Nobody wants him to play anymore, or at least the, a bulk, the bulk of fans seem to have turned on him. And I think that it, the union at large at least has to give the illusion or the, the, uh, the, the notion to the public at large that they that they support the that they don't support using drugs that they don't support using anything uh, coloring outside the lines at this point and i think politically <clears throat> to some degree that's not a, a stupid move because i think not a whole lot of people feel empathetic for players who make millions and millions of dollars and then are, re- are considered to be cheaters I'm interested in uh, something Joe Sheehan wrote recently about this whole scandal, and that is for all their protestations about how they want to keep the game clean and, you know, we don't we don't condone these uh, PED usages by our uh, teammates and our competitors, it seems like that when players get caught, they serve their time, they come back, and everything's hunky-dory with all the rest of the players. Bartolo Colon, uh, Joe pointed out, the, the uh, other day, came off the field uh, after another successful outing. All his teammates were around him, slapping him on the back. Out to go, Bartolo. Way to go, buddy. And this is a guy who has been suspended once. Has been, his name has come up with this biogenesis business again, so he's probably facing another term. It seems like the players, at least, are willing to forgive and forget because Bartolo Colon winning game after game and throwing a two seventy five ERA helps their team win. And I'm wondering how you think this is going to affect fantasy baseball because there's lots of people out there, and I see them on the forums and I see them on the message boards. I hate these guys, and I would never touch one of these guys. But if, if Ryan Braun's available with the ninth pick next year in the first round, how many guys are going to pass him over? Very, very few people. I think it's it's very easy to talk out of principle, but it's not always uh, when push comes to shove so easy to act out of principle. You know, and a bargain is a bargain. I think to a degree, players recognize that you, you do what you have to do to help the team win, and I, I think they view it like that. And uh, I thought it was interesting. Finally, on this note, uh, that uh, Ryan Braun, when he plea bargained this deal, and it looks like a plea bargain to me, uh, managed to get his suspension to take place just this year, including the playoffs if Milwaukee were to execute a miracle unlike any we've ever seen, but that he cleared the path to be ready to go for spring training next year, which in a way is being competitive and ready to help your team because the Brewers are pretty much a lost cause uh, this year. And uh, one other bit of news I wanted to ask you about, Lore, is the uh, Matt Garza trade. He gets traded from Chicago to Texas. This was somewhat expected, but I wonder what was your take, and especially what about the prospects Texas gave up? I I, I think Texas gave up a lot of guys, but Texas, you know, I was... He's he's been sort of up and down, but I've been a Justin Grimm fan. I have him on my Cout Wars team. But they, I, I think Chicago picked up some good guys, and it's funny Texas needed some help with their with their arms. It's, it's they had a full rotation. Remember they had to bump Alexia Gondo from their <clears throat> from their rotation into their bullpen because they had too many starters to start the season. All of a sudden, bang! They don't have enough. 
Um, I think Garza will do really well back at the American League. I think he's well-suited to that team. He's a power pitcher. Um, and somehow over the last few years, the Rangers have managed to do really well in a hitter's park, getting the most out of their pitchers. And, you know, he'll, he might give up some home runs here and there, but I think as a strikeout pitcher, he's a really good match for that, that team. So I, I think it was a pretty good trade. Um, and, you know, I'm curious to see what the fab bids in, in, in the American leagues are going to be this year, just, uh, or at least this next week, that is. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, I've got, I've got the most money in AL talent. Do I, do I bid $90 on him and then trade him or trade Justin Verlander for a hitter? Uh, does anybody want Justin Verlander for a hitter? What, what do you do? So it'll be interesting to see the machinations behind that. And again, as for the Cubs, they're they're rebuilding. Uh, I mean, they've been rebuilding for what 108 years now. But uh, Theo Epstein's a smart guy. Obviously, he knows what he's doing, and he he salvaged what he could. And and I think he got a pretty good deal too. I think it was a good you know a good trade means everybody had to give up something. Everybody felt the pain, and everybody felt the gain. And I think that just kind of defines it. Everybody's familiar with Mike Olt, the AAA third baseman Texas gave up, and starter Justin Grimm, as you said, has a track record this year at the big league level. The uh, third name, uh, there's also a player to be named later, but the third name in the trade going to Chicago is single-A right-hander C.J. Edwards. Uh, do you know anything about him? Not much. Not much, really. Uh, I, you know, I know he didn't make my prospect list, but usually my prospect list only looks at players that uh, at high A and above, so I, I hadn't really... I'm sorry to say I hadn't really researched him at all, but but Grimmett Oak could be could be some interesting chips there. And he was given up on by Texas, uh, something else they have in common. Uh, Laura, how are you doing in your leagues? It reminds me of report cards when I was six. You know, I've got a couple of sim teams, a, a Stratomatic team, and a score sheet team that I'm rebuilding that I will have very good years next year. Um, my Cal Wars team, I think I've got eight guys on the DL right now, and that. That, that that's a you know that'll that'll kill you. Um, so I, I mean I'm still kind of in the middle of the pack, but I don't have a whole lot of hope there. And uh, same with the XFL, NFBC, and my uh, my late my labor team is actually doing very well. I'm in third place, but but that, my offense, a lot of my offense, especially mixed leagues, is tied to to Ryan Zimmerman and Ike Davis. And uh, you know if they have the second halves they had last year, I should be golden. But if they don't. Think I won't. <laughs> I'm asking everybody, Laura, about Manny Ramirez. Uh, the uh, Rangers have announced they're moving him up to AAA. Do you think he has any chance this year of having a fantasy impact? Uh, uh-uh, not really. What it reminds me of, God, it must have been 20 years ago when the Red Sox signed Kevin Mitchell right, right before opening day, and we were just in an AL only league, and I didn't think that. Uh, we should include Mitchell. He still, was, I think, he still hadn't come up to the big club. He was still a minor leaguer, or at least at that time, the Sox still had him at Pawtucket. And there was a big discussion, and 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 I think he went for they they decided he was a major leaguer, and I think he went for like sixteen dollars or something like that. <laughs> Not to me, but I remember dismissing him. I, you know, I I think it's pretty hard to be away from it that long, be that old, and. Major leagues is tough. Major leagues is tough. I don't really see him doing much. And staying with real baseball, just briefly, who, if you had to pick today, who do you think is going to be in the World Series? Well, I got it down to four anyway. I think I think the two best teams in the National League are the Reds and the Cardinals. Uh, I don't think there's much question in the American League. I like the Tigers a lot, but you know, I think I think everybody has to watch out for the Athletics. They they not only have a really good manager, their pitching is, is in sync, and their manager really knows how to plug spots, platoon right, and they've got some pretty good pop, too. You know, everybody in their starting lineup, for the most part, is capable of double-digit homers. They've got speed. They've got pretty good defense, and, and nobody, nobody seems to be taking them too seriously yet, but they, in fact, you know, I didn't last year. I, I didn't think they were bad, but... I just thought they were kind of a weird surprise, but they're really good. They're really good. So I think people should watch out for them. You said the Reds and the Cardinals in the National League. Uh, where does that leave the Pirates for you? Um, I think that leaves the Pirates that they might have a good season, but they've never been in the postseason before. And the Reds and the Cards are kind of like machines at this point. They're they're so good. They're just, you know not only that they're deep. 
they got minor leaguers they can feed off of it. They're, those teams are good. You know, the, and the Pirates are fine. It's, it's, in fact, my friend Jeff Smith, who works in the press box for stats with me, he was, he was saying how much he would love it if it was like a Pittsburgh-Cleveland World Series, which I guess is a, a, a you know, a, 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 a a disaster for Fox or who for advertising, but yeah. it sure is fun for baseball when teams that haven't been there before do make it. No kidding, especially coming up off the canvas like those two franchises certainly have uh, seen better days, especially in the last few years. Uh, what do you think are the chances of a big race-altering trade between now and the deadline? Boy, if there is one, I hope it goes to the American League in, in that. Uh, Matt Kemp gets traded somewhere where I can pick him up with my cow, with my fab dollars. But I, I think it, it seems like the big names seem to be Garza, um, and uh, uh, I guess I've heard Michael Young bantered about. But I think something will happen. But I don't think anything like last year when it was uh, Agon and Loney and 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 uh, Carl Crawford and all. That was yeah. a crazy trade, but. Uh, Trade deadline is always fun, though. It makes you keep, makes you stay on top of the transactions. Well, I do anyway, just cause. But but it makes the transactions extra fun. That's for sure. Lori, you just wrote a column looking at some of the prospects who played in the futures game during All Star Weekend, and uh, I noticed that you really like Christian Yelich, the Marlins outfield prospect. What is it about Christian Yelich? Well, he had a really really good 2012. He is struggling a little bit relative to that, but. He's still, uh, I think he's still got around an 840 OPS, though, and he's just 21. His own base numbers are okay. I, and you know, 21's pretty good to be succeeding at, at, at AA. Um, and I, I just think he's, he, he just, his numbers tell me, and especially his, his plate discipline numbers, I really, I'm really big when I'm looking at, at minor leaguers, at looking at age, level of play, and ability to control the strike zone whether you're a pitcher or you're a hitter. And if you're a hitter and you can manage a pretty good on-base percentage at that age, because that's a tough jump, then uh, you know I, that, that usually bodes well. And he just seems to be doing that, and I, I, I think he could be part of a really good outfield. That, 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 the Fitch are going to be a really fun team in a couple of years, I think. They're, gonna be, they're like their uh, Florida brethren. I think they're, they're, they're taking a big page from Tampa and really rebuilding correctly from within and drafting very well, I think. Laura, you're also more optimistic about Billy Hamilton, the Reds' base-stealing phenomenon, than a lot of people because they're not uh, really confident that he's going to be able to hit enough or get on base enough to use his speed at the major league level. He did have a really, really good 2012, and he also made that, that jump to A. He played a lot at A last year, and I think that, aside from Aside from adjusting to the majors, the double-A the jump is the hardest. Um, it's true he's having on, not having that great of a year this year. I think he does have over 50 steals, but you know you still got to get on base in the majors. But I think just, just to, be, to qualify it, I, I think I wrote in that piece, I'm still not sure whether he becomes Sean Figgins early in his career or Sean Figgins late in his career. So, <laughs> it, you know... Uh, I don't. I don't see him as a starter right now. That's for sure. I do see him as a role player, but but he also is very young still. So you know. But but basically, I, I'm rooting a lot of it that that he had a good 2012, making the adjustment to Double A. That that that's usually a big deal. That shows somebody can learn too. Uh, Michael Inoa of uh, the Oakland Athletics, uh, a starting pitcher, he made a big splash a few years ago when the A's signed him because they gave him a really big bonus. Uh, then he got pretty badly hurt, and there was some question whether he'd ever be able to make it back. And he is back now. He's back in the minor leagues, and you think he bears watching. I do for a couple reasons. One, I think he just got promoted. I can't remember if it was to high A or double A. And, and he got clobbered his first start. But he put together... Before his promotion, he he had a very very nice line for one. For two, I'll go back to you know in in, in noting that the athletics that nobody really is paying that much attention, uh, or, or it doesn't seem like it, they are and have been very 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 good at acquiring and developing pitchers over the last four or five years. Um, I mean, everybody thinks or thought that Brett Anderson would be 
the big man in their rotation. And for the most part, he hasn't even really pitched the last couple of years. And still, you know, I, I think Griffin, I think Straley, I think Malone. Uh, they've, I don't know what they've been doing with Bartolo Colon, but it's pretty amazing. Uh, and Jared Parker, if you follow Jared Parker at all, at all, he's been really, really good the last two months. He just they all kind of struggled the first month of the of, of this season. Uh, but anyway, the, the A's are really, really good at pitchers, at, at picking them and at developing them. And uh, you know, it's kind of like the Dodgers used to be. That was they were better at it than anyone else. And I think just that uh, that that mindset of the team and how they do that, I think bears bears watching. So if you have a guy that that's showing some dominance like that, I, I think they're always worth watching, especially in a good organization. Yeah, we've talked about that on Baseball HQ Radio in the past with you and with other uh, fantasy experts. You've got to pay attention to the organization. Uh, there are There's a reason that Atlanta is always strong with their prospects, and when they give up on a guy as they did with Tommy Hansen or Jar Jurgens, that says something about what you should think about about that prospect as well and conversely if they bring in somebody and and a Mike Miner pops to mind a young guy that they're willing to roll with then you got to really give that a little extra weight as well and the ace as you said seem to be heading in the direction of becoming like an Atlanta or a Tampa with their reputation for developing pitchers yeah hope so it's really fun to be at the ballpark when they're winning let me tell you and what chances are that they're going to be in San Jose in the next three years i i don't know i know there apparently there was a lawsuit uh i don't i don't think i don't think anybody in the immediate organization really wants that to happen i don't because that would be a, a a really rugged commute that you know hour and a half to get there each way um just because traffic can be so crazy but i i think something's got to happen i they they still i, I think i think the maybe it's just me but the sentimental view hope is that they can build a downtown ballpark in oakland a small ballpark like at&t and and i think if they did that the a's would do very very well there there's there's several places where that in in downtown oakland where that could happen that are close to public transportation but i don't i don't see that in the next couple of years although the longer they argue about it the longer they're in the coliseum which is seen better days it's all geared to football yeah, I remember reading something about Oakland having a, uh, a possible situation in the city, and then there was, again, some kind of legal wrangling going on about who was going to pay for what, and the whole thing seemed to end up on either hold or thrown out in the garbage. Yep, yep. And, uh, you know, the owners are, are the owners of these now made their, made their money in, in, in land development and real estate, so probably somehow or other that's going to factor in where they're going to I, I mean, I have to think that. I don't mean that to be cynical. I just mean that from a business perspective. They've got to be thinking, how do we get this land and do it? How do we do it cheap <laughs> and, and, and make money off of it? So, In that same column, uh, before we move to another topic, Lore, uh, Boston third base prospect uh, Garen Ciccini, he's a high batting average speed guy, but he's a third baseman, and it doesn't seem to offer a lot of power for a corner guy, and I'm wondering first, give us uh, you know 20 seconds on Garen Sacchini, but more importantly, do you think that the idea or the tradition that corner guys have to provide power is changing in the major leagues? Well, I don't know if it's changing. I, I, I mean, I think wherever you can get power is good, but and and I do a top 250 list every year, and, and he he scored uh, um, Sacchini scored number 234 on it. So I've been I've been kind of paying attention to him for a while anyway, but I think it goes a couple ways. One, if you can hit, you can hit, and I think also younger players probably are going to develop some power. And I mean it's a stretch, but if you think about another Boston third baseman, Wade Boggs wasn't a wasn't a huge power hitter till till later in his career when he he popped twenty big flies a couple of times. But I think if you could hit, and, and if you have doubles power, especially a little bit of pop, if is it really that much worse if you can hit 47 doubles in Fenway and 10 homers as opposed to 20 homers and, and, and 30 doubles? It doesn't really matter that much. And, and also the name of the game is to either hit the ball and get, to get on base. And I think Sacchini can do that. And so it's just how you want to use the parts. The other thing, too, is maybe they move him. Uh, 
Yeah. I guess not to second base because that's sort of deep head's domain. But right. but I guess it's possible to move him. And another guy like that too, if you think about it, is was Kevin Euclid, where nobody saw him having thirty homer power when he came up. But a lot of times players develop that. Um, they also get some help from major league pitchers because those guys throw so hard that if you do make good contact, the ball's going to go. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Lore Michaels from MastersBall.com, KFFL, and USA Today. And, and uh, Lore, the trade of Scott Feldman from the Cubs across leagues to the Orioles got you writing about fab bidding. There are obviously no hard and fast rules when it comes to making your decisions about fab, but where do you come down on the, uh, the whole debate? Do you spend early or do you save it for late? Well, it's... It, it's sort of the, the, the same principle as in the uh, during an auction where, you know, you want to spend your money prudently, but you certainly don't want to walk away with money on the table. Um, I, I, do, I don't think it's a bad idea to wait as long as possible on one hand. On the other hand, if a player is traded, if you need a starting pitcher and you've got the money, I don't think grabbing, using Feldman as the example, I don't think that's a, a bad move necessarily and, you know, I mean, he is a starting pitcher. He's going to start for a contending team. They're a pretty good team. So you could do a lot worse than that. It's safer than gambling on Drew Pomeranz or Chad Hutchinson coming through out of nowhere to go with a veteran. And Feldman's had a pretty good year, too, just to go back to him. And he's had stretches, as we've even discussed, where, He's been a very, very strong starter. But I think the other thing you have to remember, at least I try to remember with Fab, is, all right, in the American League, I don't really need a starting pitcher. In fact, in the National League, I don't need a starting pitcher. But if I have the most money and that's what the best player available, I'm going to take him anyway, figuring I can make a trade, that that gives me a surplus and somebody's going to need pitching. So I, I think the other thing is just don't try not to get too boxed in that if there, if you need a hitter, and there isn't one, and you have the money, then take the pitcher and turn them into, you know, turn the lemon in the lemons into lemonade if you can. If you can, being the operative word. Uh, in your Feldman column, you noted that he has a past track record of success after the All Star break, particularly in July and August, which you based on. Uh, he had a really good July and August in two thousand nine. How aggressively can fantasy players infer success in a particular couple of months by looking at some starts that happened uh, in some cases years earlier well there are players who are clearly second half players or have their have their best times during certain months so i think it it bears to do that but or, or at least to take a look at that but i also think for the most part if i'm scrambling for a fab player this time of year that means i'm scrambling hold my position or try to gain position as opposed to having a dominant team. So you're going to have to take some gambles, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. I mean, I basically got Feldman as a throwaway. It, it was just sort of a, a quick turnaround with Jason Collette where I gave him Willie Ibar. I needed another starter, and he had, Feldman hadn't been that effective, but I got him in 2009, and lo and behold, I got him for those months, and he helped me win. So, you know, you do have to take chances. You do have to trade, be willing to trade a chip player to fill holes to, to maintain a position, too. Um, but it's definitely, I think, the time of year where you, you want to, I wouldn't say throw caution to the wind, but certainly not worry so much about being cautious. Laura, you had a really interesting column not long ago about your own experience in an NFBC league to demonstrate the critical difference in getting wrong your decision whether to go with first baseman Ike Davis or first baseman Chris Davis. Uh, you chose Ike Davis. It turned out to be a fairly catastrophic difference. And explain to us how you thought about that whole issue. I really rooted a lot on Ike's second half last year and his struggles before that, and also with illness the year before that. I just thought he had come into his own and that he was ready I thought he was ready to be Paul Goldschmidt in the National League instead of Paul Goldschmidt being Paul Goldschmidt. Um, it's, and it's not like I didn't like Chris Davis, but and he had he had a good year last year. Uh, I just didn't see him stepping up quite the same. I don't think his on-base numbers, his walk numbers, were, were quite as convincing as Ike's could be. Even though Ike strikes out a lot, he does get walks, and, and Goldschmidt's a really great on-base guy. So 
So I just didn't see Chris emerging in the same way, which which at least this year, obviously, he has. Um, would have made a big difference, but, uh, you know, it, it pays your money and you take your chances. But I think in most of the leagues I looked at, in, in fact, on the NFBC ADP board, I think Chris got picked on an average of around round 14, and Ike got picked around 12, and, and Goldschmidt around round 11. So it wasn't just me. A lot of us were fooled I, I, or, or didn't see the writing on the wall. I'm not sure which way it goes. And as you said, the question might be whether there was any writing on the wall that wasn't fairly positive in the favor of Ike Davis. And there was uh, certainly, I remember before the season, a lot of questions about Chris Davis, especially his swing and miss rate, his overall strikeout rate. There were a lot of reasons to have Chris Davis behind Ike Davis, and it's just one of those things that doesn't work out. But I noticed that you actually went and did the math and said, what if I had have got Chris Davis and not Ike Davis? And it was a huge swing, something like 12 points for you and 12 points against the guy uh, who picked up Chris Davis. And I thought it was interesting also that you said the experience has made you think that maybe the uh, roto tradition or the fantasy tradition that you win or lose your draft in the first three rounds might not be completely accurate what did you mean when you said that yeah i i i don't think it's accurate i mean i think i think ron during the first pitch has done stuff every year uh and that's the 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 first pitch spring events that he's done where he showed that out of the first round guys uh a couple of them maybe make it back to the first round the next year that almost always those guys disappoint expectations wise but the the team that's ahead in the NFBC team I'm in, they're basically winning on Chris Davis, on Gene Segura, and I forget who the third player is, but those are all guys that he picked between the 14th and the 22nd round, and you know that I, I think Michael Kadire is the other guy there that that that's why he's winning because he got those guys, and I, if you translate that I think into a an auction pool, that means. He basically picked those guys up somewhere for between eight and twelve dollars, as opposed to paying twenty-five. I paid twenty-five, I think, for Ike Davis in labor, um, and I, I mean that's how you win. It's turning profit on the player. You get a, a four-dollar player, and he gives you eight dollars worth of profit. If every one of your players can do that, you're probably going to win. Uh, the flip side is if you have a Matt Kemp and you paid thirty-five dollars for him. He's going to have to have a really, really good year just to break even. So you're you're dependent on those on those second tiered guys, and I think I think we certainly you don't want to make a, a, a I hate to say a dumb pick with the first three rounds. And I don't know. I mean, picking Chris Davis in, the, in as a second round pick in the NFBC just straight draft that probably would have caused a lot of people's heads to spin at the time. <laughs> But now it would have looked like genius. So, you know, hindsight is the, the great healer of all, I think. But I do think we have to really pay attention. It's those middle-late rounds where you make or break your team. Yeah, hindsight's always twenty twenty, as you said. And I, I thought it was interesting, too, when you said when you compare – the dollar value of those picks versus the round value of those picks. And the that to some people, that's one of the advantages of auctions is you're not obliged to spend heavily on the on the main players, the, the big the big dollar players. But in a straight draft, you've got to pick somebody in the first round that you can't pass. And, you know, it's the same, it's the same as the Ike-Chris Ike conundrum where, you know, you pay your money and you take your chances. I, in that NFBC league, I had the number one pick, and... You know, I took Ryan Braun over Miguel Cabrera. Ouch! Just that <laughs> just that would have made a huge difference. And I don't ask me why. I, I just I love Miguel, but I thought Braun would steal some bases and hit thirty homers, and and you know he didn't. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Lore Michaels from MastersBall.com, KFFL.com, and USA Today. And Lore, the last few weeks I've been asking our featured guests to give us some picks for buying low and selling high. I know we always talk about this, easier said than done, but I would like to ask you about some hitters and pitchers in both leagues in each of those categories. And let's start with our buy lows. In the American League, who's a hitter you'd like to buy low right now? Well, this will probably cause everybody to shriek, but 
you know, I think Adam Dunn could probably be head cheap. And it's true his batting average is awful, but his on-base totals aren't that bad. And he's got, what, 24 homers and like 60 RBI. So in the counting numbers, he's going to help you a lot. And if you're in an on-base league, he'll, he won't even hurt you in on-base percentage. But I, I think we tend to forget he's, he's still only 33. He's fifth in active players in home runs. If he has two more years like this, he's going to have 500 homers, which might push the Dave Kingman. I think Dave Kingman was the first guy to have 400 homers and not be in the in the Hall of Fame, well, well, Adam might push that to 500, but but I think you could have him cheap just because his batting average is so low. But the other guy I really think you should take a look at, I don't know how low you could get him after the All-Star game now, but Jonas Cespedes was only hitting around 220, 230, even though he had 15, 14, 15 homers. He's really streaky, and he had periods last year right around this time of year where he was just red hot for, for six weeks. He was getting two, three hits almost every day. And I like Cespedes a lot. He's he's really, uh, he, the guy can really hit. I also think the Adam Dunn equation, something that you should keep in mind, even in a batting average league, is by this point most teams have amassed 3,000-plus at-bats, and Adam Dunn is only going to get maybe, what, 250, 275 more at-bats from now to the end. Even if he swings and misses and goes out a lot in that period of time, it's just not like he can move your batting average that much given the total of at-bats that you're going to have. True, true, especially if you have some other decent hitters anyway. But, yeah, yeah. that's a very, very good point, Patrick, very good point. But, and, we, you know, we have a tendency to go, Adam Dunn, what do I want to do with him? Well, if he hits 15 homers and knocks in 37 more runs, you would love to have that. Yeah, especially if the categories are tight. How about a by-low hitter in the National League lore? Well, I think this is hopeful. I've been saying this anyway, but my the one guy I I don't know is Ryan Zimmerman. I I, I don't know if he if it, if his arm injury would make it so that people would let go of him cheap or they're anticipating anything. But but again, he had like Ike Davis, who's another kind of guy like that. They both were red hot second half last year. I think between them they hit almost 50 homers second half. So I like those two guys and. The other guy who seems to be pretty strong second half, who's had a weaker first half, is Ricky Weeks. He, he, he somehow or other makes himself worthwhile during the second half every year, and, and I think he's a guy that people... Because one of the things, too, like Adam Dunn, is, is I think owners get tired of the same stuff from a ball player. So I, I think it's a little easier to pry him loose when there's, a, when there's seemingly a history of not doing very well as opposed to people remembering, oh, they get hot and they do very well. Moving to the mound, how about a pitcher in the American League you think we could buy low? Um, I'd look at Bud Norris. Uh, on, I guess he's on the Astros. Uh, he's had really, really pretty good numbers, and my understanding is the team is shopping him around potentially anyway. Um, I, I, I think he could be had for not too much and give you some strikeouts and some wins and some pretty good innings. I, st- I checked him the other day as part of a trade uh, negotiation that I was doing in one of my leagues, and uh, yeah, his ERA is around five, and his WHIP is around one forty-five. So, uh, if you're buying, you definitely are buying low. How about in the National League, a buy low pitcher? Well, probably going to hit you the same way, Giovanni Gallardo. Gallardo, sorry there, Giovanni, uh, on the Brewers, who has usually managed to come up with pretty good numbers, and not this year so far. But I think he's due for a uh, an upturn. Uh, you know, everybody, even. Even Joe Saunders and Joe Blanton have periods where they're unhittable, so I think Yarda will have that. Also, Milwaukee tends to be a pretty good second-half club, so I, I, I think that combination bodes well, or at least suggests that, that he might be a good guy to acquire. Adam Dunn, Ryan Zimmerman, Bud Norris, and Giovanni Gallardo, those are your by-lows lore. How about we'll move to the sell highs, a hitter in the American League? Uh, Gordon Beckham. I see he's hitting around 300, but other than his first year, I don't see any reason for him to continue hitting 300. And he's a second baseman, so I think team, somebody will be willing to take a gamble on him, and you might be able to get something pretty good for him. In the National League, a sell high? Uh, how about Carlos Gomez, who I've never been sold on, and I, and I continue to not be. And probably it will cost me. There's Sometimes there's just players like that where I just – refuse to believe that they're as good as their numbers and they actually turn out to be that good or better but i just don't trust mr gomez 
And back to the pitcher's mound, the American League sell-high pitcher. Well, his number, his, his ERA is a little high, but his whip's pretty good. But another guy like, basically, I've never been convinced with is Rick Porcello on, uh, on the Tigers. I, I, think, I think I would, I would not hang on to him and be happy for what I could get for him. And in the National League, a sell-high pitcher there? Probably Patrick Corbin, although, you know, I think he's kind of everybody's choice. And he could continue to do really well. Uh, the reason I would not hesitate trading him is probably nobody played premium dollar for him in the first place. So chances are somebody's more than made their money off of him. And you could probably trade him for a pretty good hitter. If you needed a hitter or a closer, you could fill a lot of holes with, with Corbin right now. I'm, I'm, I'm not totally convinced. If, if, I, if he keeps doing what he's doing into next year, then I'll be a believer. But, but he could just as easily be Ian Kennedy. So that's Gordon Beckham, Carlos Gomez, Rick Porcello, and Patrick Corbin on the sell-high list. Laura, before we go, I wanted to ask you about the rockremnants.com website. Uh, you're a participant in that with some other fantasy baseball experts and past guests here on Baseball HQ Radio. You guys recently published your 50 Essential Rock Albums list. And I'm wondering, now that it's out, how did you think it worked out? I think it came out pretty good. Uh, I, there's some bands that I thought really deserved to be on there that weren't. Um, I guess the Velvet Underground made it, but I, I had a tough time cutting Rock and Roll Animal from my top 50, and and I actually missed. Um, I, I have a Buddy Holly's Greatest Hits that I really thought was deserving, but I don't believe Greatest Hits have a place on lists like that. So, um, but I, I, you know, and I was kind of surprised too that. Not so much that Exile on Main Street made made it to number five, but Beggar's, Beggar's Banquet was number four, and that none of us picked Sgt. Pepper, which was such a breakthrough album. We were more in the revolver rubber soul ilk. So, um, but but it was a really fun exercise, and you know, uh, I I enjoyed doing it. It was it was hard to do though. Believe me, it's it's really hard <laughs> narrowing things down to only fifty. It is. It's a tough exercise. When I was in the newspaper business years ago, uh, used to every so often when you needed something to fill for the Christmas holidays or something, you'd uh, invite you know various radio guys and record store guys to pop up their top fifty albums, and it's a tough exercise to do. It's it's not so much finding the fifty albums; it's cutting down from the five hundred you want to put on the list. Exactly. Your list peaked somewhat controversially, spoiler alert, with Elvis Costello's 1978 album, This Year's Model, and uh, that was probably a little uh, surprising. It isn't usually found atop many lists of this type. Uh, I think it was number 98 or 99 in Rolling Stone's list of the top 500. Uh, Peter Kreutzer said the outcome was because the album was on most of your guys' lists and not necessarily too high on anybody's list. What did you think of This Year's Model as the number one record? I was real happy with it. It's a it's a great album, and you know this thing was and and I don't know how Peter developed the point system or the scoring. Um, he he tried to explain it to all of us a few times, and then we all we tried to pretend we don't understand statistics, but uh, that probably didn't wash very well in a fantasy baseball uh, statistical analysis environment. But uh, yeah, <laughs> but it did make five of our six lists, and. It's not like we discussed it before, and uh, you know when I was thinking of albums, it just sort of popped into my head. I didn't really think that much of it any more than I, I. I mean, I had, I had volunteers, and I had Surrealistic Pillow by the Airplane. I had Ogden's Nut Gone Flake. I had Moby Grapes' first album. I had uh, Working Men's Dead, uh, or not Working Men's Dead, uh, American Beauty by the Dead in my list. Um, so I mean, when I was coming up, it just sort of there it was and. It is my, I think, the strongest Elvis album, and he's a great songwriter. He's yeah. he's produced consistently good material over the years, so certainly he deserves a presence. But I think the fact that he made five of the six lists, I don't think anybody else did that. Um, I think Exile and Beggar's Banquet made four, but uh, but but it was. I was really surprised that that was the album that we never discussed it, and that seemed to be the one that all five of us gravitated to. And that that's that's a pretty strong endorsement, uh, at least to me. It is a great album, though, right? Oh, it is a great album. Yeah, I, I wondered were you guys voting on the British release or the U.S. one that they added Radio Radio? My copy had Radio Radio on it, so I've always associated with that. But I didn't really think about it. We didn't talk about it. 
Each of you contributed your own top 50 list, and that's, uh, as we've said, is how they came up with the overall list. Uh, uh, first of all, did you have this year's model on yours? Were... I, I did indeed. And what was the number one album on your list? Did you number them? No, I, I couldn't. I mean, the first one on the list was Blonde on Blonde. I know that. Um, and that was followed by Revolver and Rubber Soul and the White Album and Abbey Road. But, um, but nah, I, 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 there's no way I could rate them. It's that, yeah. And it's changed over the years anyway. I mean, I remember when Making Movies by Dire Straits was my favorite album. Oh, yeah. um, I remember when I couldn't get enough of Wild Gift by X. Uh, so, you know, it, yeah, or it's, it, but, but to a large degree, that helped define to me what made the list, or at least my top 50, was I, I'll never forget, because Yankee Hotel Foxtrot by Wilco made my list. And I didn't really even know I liked that album and I was playing it on the way to work when I used to have a long commute to work, and I'm listening to it, and, and I didn't really un- even notice it getting under my skin until I caught myself walking into my building after I got out of my car, and I was humming one of the songs to, to the album to myself and went, oh, I guess I like that song. Oh, I guess I like that album. It, it gets underneath your skin, and then you, you know that's all you want to hear. I remember the same when Arcade Fire's Funeral came out, and I just got into it, and that, that's all I wanted to listen to for weeks. And uh, so that, to me, that, that was a lot of what, what dictated what my favorite albums were. It's just whether, when, once I got them, if I just couldn't get enough. And I still like them. They haven't worn out their welcome. More recently at rockremnants.com, Laura, you wrote an appreciation of the British band XTC. I did. I did, and I felt bad because Skylarking, which is what I principally wrote about, it, it didn't pop into my head when I was coming up with my top 50, and, and I don't think it's one of those albums that I played without, you know, I, I just had to play it all the time, but it was one of those that whenever it came on, whenever a song from it came on to my, my, my shuffle or whatever, it has come on later, or when I've heard a song on the radio, I've, I've always gone, oh yeah, in fact, what prompted it was we were watching uh, Weeds, and the end of episode five or six ends with the song Dear God, which I thought, oh, yeah, XTC. I mean, I just kind of forgot about them, but it's a lovely, lovely album, a great job by the band, and a great production by, by Todd Rundgren. And I just thought it was worth writing about that I'm sorry I missed them, and it's still a great album. And you mentioned in particular a track called The Meeting Place, and we're going to hear that right now. Excellent.
from their 1986 album Skylarking, that's XTC, and The Meeting Place, a favorite of Lore Michaels from Masters Ball, KFFL.com and USA Today. And before we go, Lore, as we wrap up, remind our listeners where else they can find out more from you. Well, those ones will do pretty well. Um, I write a couple times a week for MastersBall.com. I write uh, Bed Goes Up column every Saturday and the Hot Page, which has been going for 15 years now, 17 years, every Monday. Uh, and then on, uh, on Tuesdays at KFFL on their baseball site, I write about uh, just fantasy thoughts and so forth. And then every Wednesday on the fantasy page at USA Today, I, I take a look at uh, three prospects. We call it three for three, um, three prospects who either you might know about or hopefully more often didn't know about that you might want to track for future fantasy use. Can't forget rock remnants, too. <laughs> Laura, thanks very much for doing this. appreciate it. We'll try to catch up with you again at least once more during the season. That'd be great, Patrick. Thanks a lot for having me. Lore Michaels is a two-time champion of Tout Wars. As you've heard, he writes regularly at mastersball.com, kffl.com, and USA Today. Our Minor League Minute and Master Notes are next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Ray Murphy. I help run things at BaseballHQ.com. I'm inviting you to join me at First Pitch Arizona, November 1st through 3rd in Scottsdale. It's three days jam-packed with seminars, scouting reports, workshops, and fantasy drafts. And best of all, First Pitch Arizona is three great days just talking baseball with hundreds of serious fantasy players like you and all the top industry experts. And don't forget the ball games. First Pitch Arizona is your chance to scout 2014's impact rookies, including the annual Rising Stars All-Star Game. Visit www.firstpitchforums.com to get the skinny and to register. Sign up by August 31st and we'll knock the price down to just 299 bucks. It's like getting Miguel Cabrera in the seventh round. First Pitch Arizona. Come see for yourself why the fantasy baseball winners who attend every year call it the most fun you can have outside of draft day. And we'll see you there. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio Tuesday. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Baseball HQ commentaries. We have Patrick DiCaprio on deck with Master Notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon telling us about Minnesota's second base prospect, Eddie Rosario. The Minnesota Twins' Eddie Rosario doesn't have the same off-the-chart tools as Byron Buxton or the raw power of teammate Miguel Sano, but his plus bat and ability to stick at second base do give him plenty of value. The 21-year-old Rosario started the year at high A Fort Myers, where he hit three twenty-nine with 13 doubles and 6 home runs and 207 at-bats, earning him a mid-season promotion to AA New Britain. Since being promoted, Rosario is hitting three oh six with 9 more doubles. Rosario has a short, compact stroke and generates solid power from his 6'1", 170-pound frame. He also has good strike zone judgment and makes consistent, hard contact. Rosario is a below-average defender, but he does have decent speed. If Rosario can continue to improve defensively, his back gives him solid potential at a very thin position. If not, he does have enough speed to move to the outfield, where he should still hit plenty of doubles with double-digit home runs. For those in AL-only keeper leagues, Eddie Rosario has nice offensive potential and is worth taking a flyer on. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Cole Begarapi, and Chris Maloney have reports and updates on the top prospects, organizational moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. BaseballHQ.com's call-up reports this week have looked at Houston shortstop Jonathan Villar, Cubs third baseman Junior Lake, and many more. And the minor league watch list, which highlights less heralded prospects with a path to the majors, is looking this week at sleepers on the verge of big league roles. Players like Baltimore right-hander Tim Alderson, Pittsburgh outfielder Andrew Lambeau, and more. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's Master Notes with Patrick DiCaprio talking this week about handling those Major League Baseball trade rumors. As we approach the trade deadline, the rumor mill ramps up. Right now, rumor has it that the Pirates are interested in Alex Rios. Many closers are reportedly on the trading block, and often fantasy players get caught up in the whirlwind not knowing what to do. 
What is the best way to prepare for the trade deadline? Do nothing. Trade rumors rarely come true, first of all, and there are many reasons for this, of course. Agents and teams trying to drive up prices or floating trial balloons or attempting to gain leverage for future negotiations. In the last few days, a lot of names have been bandied about with more to come as we get closer and closer to July 31st. Among the names mentioned are Justin Morneau, Jonathan Papelbon, Michael Young, Martin Perez, and at least a dozen prospects. Maybe 10% of the rumored players will actually change uniforms. Even if your guy does get traded, it usually doesn't matter. In the vast majority of deals, fantasy players are virtually unaffected. In a mixed league or a one-league setup where the player is not traded across leagues, the only concern is how a new park or league change may affect the player psychologically or skills-wise. And if you think pundits have a good grasp on that, you are mistaken. All we have are rough ideas by using park effects, which themselves will swing wildly from year to year, even though the park itself is exactly the same. We always have a good general idea of what may happen, but we only have guesses as to the specifics of how a rumored deal will affect a player. So rather than go off half-cocked, your best play, just to stand pat. The only interesting situation is when your player seemingly gets shafted by moving to a new park, and even in this circumstance, we advocate doing nothing if you face any sophisticated opponents. Let's take a look at Alex Rios going to Pittsburgh. Over the last three seasons, Chicago's U.S. cellular field increased right-handed batter home runs by 49%, and PNC Park decreased them by 31%. That is a very stark difference. If you accept the fallacy of division, you assume Rios' home runs will decrease by the difference between the two parks. But that is assuming the general case will apply to the specific. Baseball HQ forecasts Rios with nine more homers over the balance of the season, which amounts to two to three home runs under this line of thinking if he is traded today to Pittsburgh. So if you choose to keep him and he gets traded, you'll lose a lot of production. Your alternative is to deal him, and if you can get full value, namely a player worth the same projected rest of season dollar value if he does not regress, then do it. But that might not be likely if your opponents are sophisticated because they know exactly what you know and will act accordingly. You can try to deal them at a discount, but will you be likely to get any more than a 275 batter with two to three projected home runs? Maybe not, and if not, it's not worth trading Rios. You can do calculations like this when the extremes are reversed, and if you work it out, you'll see that the best play is to ignore the changed situation and stand pat. You lose more by trading Alex Rios at a discount and passing up the chance that he will not regress than you do by keeping him and hoping. It is said in military theory that defense is the strongest form of fighting a battle, and in the case of possibly traded players, your best strategy is to play defense and do nothing. For Baseball HQ, this is Patrick DiCaprio. Patrick DiCaprio is a member of the Master Notes rotation at BaseballHQ.com and Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Master Notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, July the 23rd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 29 of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank MastersBall.com fantasy writer Lore Michaels. Great fun talking with Lore about baseball and music. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, our minor league analyst Rob Gordon with the Minor League Minute, and rotisserie columnist Patrick DiCaprio, our Master Notes commentator this week. Be sure to check out BaseballHQ.com for these features. Dr. HQ Rick Wilton looks at players returning from the DL for the second half. And speaking of the DL, Playing Time Today looks at returnees Matt Kemp and Melky Cabrera and other players. Stephen Nickrand's Starting Pitcher's Buyer's Guide looks at skill changes from 2012 to 2013. Plus, we'll have all our regular features on Buyer's Guides, Division Outlooks, Pitcher Matchups, Scouting, and more. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Also, check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed, at BaseballHQ. And feel free to join the almost 160 people who follow me on my personal Twitter account, at Patrick Davitt. 
Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with our news and analysis show featuring League Watch news items, Todd Zola, and weekly matchups. And next Tuesday, we'll have Steve Gardner, Senior Fantasy Editor at USA Today, on another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>